Hi, everybody. Welcome once again to another episode of Security Management Highlights. I'm your host, the security guy, Chuck Harold. Uh, but in reality, gender equality um, uh, looks like this. While 70% of women work in education sphere, there are practically no women in the top management of the state. And most of the leadership posts are held by men. And there is no a single female general. So once we are human with each other, once we hear each other's voices or see each other's faces, um, that's when our de-escalation skills really can show up. Here is the problem that if you have a, a training set that's not representative of the, the entire world, you your model ends up being super accurate for, uh, let's say, for people from the greater China region, but not very accurate from pe for people from Europe or people from Africa. All that and much, much more on this month's edition of Security Management Highlights. Tatiana Antrianovam is an attorney and head of the legal department at Octava Capital. She is also a member of the ASIS Women in Security Community, Ukraine chapter. Tatiana, welcome to Security Management Highlights. Hello. Tell me what area of security you work in. Yeah, well, uh, I'm a lawyer by profession, and I started uh, and uh, plumped to this uh, activity as a lawyer, as a legal, uh, as a head of legal department. Uh, then our business understand uh, that security uh, is of a high interest and uh, topic uh, for our business. And I started practicing corporate security. Uh, namely, I supervise and uh, manage information, legal, administrative and personal security uh, of the large Ukrainian holding Octava Capital. Uh, it's indeed uh, a large holding uh, and includes over a dozen businesses in different industries, from plant nurseries uh, to cybersecurity. So for a long time, I have been an active member of this process. And uh, during this process, I became a, a member of professional communities in the field of security. In Ukraine, uh, I am a board of member uh, of Association of Corporate Security Professionals of Ukraine and uh, also a board member of the Ukrainian chapter of ESSES. Let's talk about the issues mm -hmm. of gender inequality. What is relevant in your country? Tell us some issues that, that happen in your area. Uh, really, uh, the uh, perception of uh, representative of corporate security in our country has been limited uh, to the dimension on physical security, uh, like protection of facilities, safety of material uh, values. So it's implied that when it comes to physical security, this profession is perceived to not female due to physiological features. And uh, when the meaning of corporate security expanded its functionality, personal, legal, information security, uh, the attitude towards the profile of a security representative began to change with transformation of the meaning. And uh, at this moment in Ukraine, uh, I would say that uh, the perception in its traditional period. Well, talk to me about cultural or traditional stereotypes uh, about this, the security sector not being suitable for women. Have you personally encountered uh, any such examples of this? 
Well, I cannot deny the existence of stereotypes regarding female and non-female professions in our country, especially in such historical uh, male industry as the security sector, especially when we're talking about Ukraine and Eastern countries. Um, but uh, fortunately, we can now observe uh, a rapid departure from outdated views in society. And this happens both uh, uh, as a result of matter, of course, evaluation when everything unnecessary and all fades out, and through a number of state and public measures uh, designed to reduce gender inequality in our country. What is the percentage of women in your country's army and law enforcement services? Uh, until recently, the Ukrainian army was traditionally one of the most conservative in terms of women on service and was completely not ready for this. However, the war in the East made its own adjustments and uh, in recent years uh, there has been fairly positive dynamics of growth of share of women on service in the Ukrainian army and police. Um, according to statistics so for uh, 2020, uh, women make uh, 12 of the total number of military personnel serving in the Ukrainian army uh, and about 22% uh, of the police personnel. The number of women who voluntarily join the armed forces is growing every year in Ukraine and they are not afraid of physical activity or exercise, daily duties and tours of hotspots. But the problem of sexual harassment in the army still remains topical. And uh, we deeply hope that an active fight against and publicity of such cases will help reduce them to nothing in the near future. Mm -hmm. Tatyana, are there any restrictions for women uh, to occupy any security positions or, let's say, military positions, either official or unofficial? Uh, well, uh, personally, I do not feel constraints in my professional realization in the business sector as well as in public activities in the field of security. Uh, but in reality, gender equality um, yeah, looks like this. While 70% of women work in education sphere, there are practically no women in the top management of the state. And most of the leadership posts are held by men. Mm, and there is no a single female general. Is there a difference in salaries of men and women working in this industry? Uh, salaries in both uh, the private and public sectors depend on the level of official post and not on gender. Uh, but as a rule, high posts are held generally by men. Unfortunately, despite the high level of education and accomplishments of Ukrainian women, they are underrepresented at the highest level of work in public life and politics. Uh, I would like to see that level of the post held uh, and the salary in this business sector would depend solely on the professional qualities and ambitions of a specialist. In what situations have you faced gender discrimination in your professional activities? And how did you respond to that? Oh, honestly, uh, I have been a speaker on a course of corporate security specialists for a long time. And every time I come to speak in front of a new audience, uh, there is an emotion of distrust in faces. Uh, questions and reactions of the audience was different uh, because there is a woman before them, in front of them. Uh, but uh, uh, as what useful a woman 
can teach in this area and uh, the audience uh, was involved during the process so uh, the uh, situation and uh, uh, attitude changes in a noticeable way uh, the audience was involved uh, and we analyze practices cases get into discussions uh, so during these courses uh, i really enjoy them tatiana Tell me what women can can bring into the security fashion that that people might not be thinking about. Oh well, uh, usually it's. Uh, I believe that women uh, can um, bring uh, new ideas and new attitude because, as I told you earlier, uh, this specific area uh, was managed by male, um, like male industry. And nowadays, when the attitude uh, changed, uh, women from their side can give uh, new ideas, uh, which can be really um, competitive uh, and uh, useful uh, uh, for for this uh, for this uh, field for this uh, direction. Do you have some examples of pathways into the profession for females specifically? Well, from my point of view and from my experience, I believe that uh, in any industry, any profession, uh, if you like this profession, you will uh, go higher and higher. You will receive more information and uh, your experience uh, will be broader. So uh, if you... uh, enjoy your profession you can give this uh, profession more and uh, receive uh, vice versa so um, my uh, um, my idea that uh, just do the case, uh, do the job uh, which you like uh, well uh, I believe uh, that in Ukraine uh, anyway we have uh, roots uh, from uh, Soviet Union uh, position you see and uh, there are a lot of men in this uh, field uh, so uh, nowadays uh, we changed and our approach uh, uh, like state approach uh, changed uh, as well however uh, I believe that uh, Ukraine have to orient uh, to European Union and USA as well because you already have uh, the practices which can be implied uh, in Ukraine, which could be uh, like uh, a good uh, examples uh, what uh, to do and what uh, is not uh, recommended to do. It sounds like the Ukraine is ta- taking a proactive approach to this and really trying to tackle it head on. Well, you know, uh, maybe uh, you are right because uh, our uh, recent years uh, we uh, have uh, changes in our legislation. And uh, as I told uh, before, uh, this uh, dynamic uh, is growing and uh, Ukrainian uh, women have more opportunities. So I believe that in the future we will take the same position and uh, the same dynamics. Tatiana, thank you so much for coming on Security Management Highlights and good luck in your career. Thank you very much, uh, you, and uh, have a good uh, day. And uh, thank you very much for this interview. I really uh, 
really thankful. Christine Scott is the Chief Executive Officer at Seattle Conflict Resolution, where she consults with employers on policy, training, crisis triage, and support for public-facing staff. She has trained over 700 people in nonviolent conflict response. Christine Scott, welcome to Security Management Highlights, my friend. Hey, thank you, Chuck. Today we're going to talk about controlling stress responses for better de-escalation. Now, I love this topic. Give us a kind of an overview of how this works. Give us the biology of fight, flight, or freeze syndrome that kind of causes these reactions. Yeah, so we're all walking around with um, some wiring that doesn't always serve us well uh, in our brain. And if we get triggered, if, if uh, we actually start heading into fight, flight, freeze, um, we will have some symptoms go on without even our awareness. Uh, for example, you know, we've all seen the completely irrational person who, when you're trying to talk to them, no new information is going in. Well, that's probably because <laughs> they are in that status um, and they've got some conspiracy thinking going on. They feel very alone and isolated, like the world is out to get them. But this actually happens to us too. Even, even when we're in an enforcement role, we can look calm on the outside, but on internally have all of this cortisol and adrenaline basically turning us more into a mammal than actually a, a, a responsible human. Now, you just said something here that I think is the most significant part of this. The person you're, as a security professional, the person you're encountering in a lobby that may be some disgruntled client that's yelling and screaming and is upset, he's in that physical mode. And what you're saying is, yep. me as a responding officer can also be in that physical mode where I'm not taking input from him and he's not taking input from me. That's a recipe for disaster. It is. It's it's um, kind of the human version of two, two redding uh, male elk. <laughs> it's not, you know, it's, it's, it's not a pretty sight. <laughs> Let's talk about those techniques that security officers can use to better improve their responses. And, you know, let's start with the security officer's state of readiness. How do they get into a state of readiness physically uh, and emotionally to deal with this stuff? So, so there's a lot you can do to prevent yourself from, from being easily hacked by your biology, right? So if you have the ability to show up to your job well-rested, not over-caffeinated, not hungry, you're, you're already like 80% of the way there. Um, unfortunately, we, we know that this is a very stressful job uh, and we know with those shifts and all of those things that it's, it's hard just to get those three under your belt. But if you can do that, you're gonna be more resilient and you're gonna be less reactive. Um, and then the other thing you can do is just in the moment when you notice, you start to have that, that feeling of edginess, that feeling like, oh, somebody's out to get me. There's, there's some um, temporary things that you can actually kind of short circuit your, your fight, fle uh, fight flight from taking over. Um, one of those things is just putting one hand on, on the back of your scalp and one hand on your forehead, apply gentle pressure and do about four or five slow breaths. I call that the neurovascular hold. Um, and it basically short circuits that wiring we talked about uh, and gets your prefrontal cortex back online. <laughs> so, your, so your rational self doesn't, doesn't completely go away and uh, get easily triggered. The other thing you can do, and, and this is great advice that comes straight from Jim Sawyer over at Seattle Children's Hospital, is really think about 
as this person is verbally attacking you, because you know you're you're the symbol of authority, they're going to go after you. Um, do their words even matter 24 hours from now? Like honestly, generally not, right? Generally, like they're they're trying to pull your strings, and and if they do, it's more on you that that that's happened than on them. If that makes sense. Well, it makes 100% sense, and and I always trained people this way when I was a police officer and later on in the guard forces. As the responder, I have all the time in the world. You can sit there and yell for a half hour, and I don't have to do anything in the moment within a second of time to your reaction. I can just sit there and analyze and come up with with a measured response to it. Talk to me about training. And and if your sense of, if you're, exactly, if your sense of urgency check is about well, this person's making a big scene and people don't feel safe, then remove them from the scene. It's, it, you you personally do have a lot of time and have a lot of choices. Let's translate that um, to, to training. So how do I train an officer mm-hmm. to understand that going into it, you're going to have some physiological responses. We're going to deal with that. There's a lot of tricks we can do and hacks we can do to fix that. But how do I get a person's security mindset to go to the place where I say, I am now going to go into strategic mode and figure out how to solve this instead of react to it. One of the things I did, I used to run a shelter for homeless youth and I would watch my team through the security footage and I could tell just from their body languages, uh, which people were going into this mammal mode and I would just talk to them later. Um, So uh, number one, be completely gentle. We all screw up and we all go there. And just notice what are the things that trigger me? What are the things that are most likely to get under my skin or pull my strings? Once you know that about yourself, you know where your work is. You know that you can do better, right? Um, and, the, and as far as training, the other thing I really recognize that often gets missed is our emotional selves. You know, there was a study done recently that only 36% of American adults can name the emotion they're experiencing at the time they're experiencing it, right? And, and we train our guard force, oh, you, you can't have emotions. Well, the truth is we have them all the time. <laughs> and it's much better to like be able to name them and be cool with it and say, okay, I'm going to need to give myself five minutes because I can't respond professionally right now. And that's okay. I think I want supervisors to, to have that language and to support their teams to, to take that break. Pre-show interview, we had some correspondence. Sure. And one of the things you pointed out was uh, something I said in one of my other interviews was that, you know, basic human nature, every single person wants to feel safe. The person that's agitated mm-hmm. and the subject of your response, they want to feel safe. You want to feel safe as the responder. How can we make a security officer feel safe when they go into a, a heated situation like that? I, I know I was fortunate enough in my police training to, to have some of this. And I think, unfortunately, due to budgets and whatnot, security forces do not receive that level of training. And if I gave no other training, in security, I would give this training first. It's it's really the most important. Yeah, that's that's why I work with so many security teams. And I'm, I'm very open to having folks c- contact me for a free consultation about how to increase that that training within their team. Um, and you know, it's it is a mind. It, it's kind of a mindset that people have to just have that that permission, not only from their supervisors but from themselves, to take that step back to not be reactive and to be really curious about the places that we do get reactive. And, you know, we've done a lot of studies on, on bias behavior and implicit bias as, as it shows up in enforcement settings. And if we don't address 
our mammalian response system, that's where our bias shows up the worst. So we, we really, it's really incumbent upon us to, to take seriously this, this call to be, like you're saying, be strategic instead of being reactive. Let me, let me shift a little bit mm -hmm. to social media. It's response versus reaction. I think that's the key. Those two words are so, so important because now I feel safe sitting at home responding to you sitting at home and we start these giant fights which escalate into some pretty nasty stuff and then manifests itself in the physical world. Let's talk yes. about right. what security professionals can do to de-escalate something like that. What are some techniques if I have a customer contacting me through social media in this highly volatile, agitated state, what kind of techniques might I employ in the cyber world to help de-escalate? Yeah, you know, I've um, I've been watching different social media hosts, people who spend a lot of their time online, um, especially people of color who've been actively baited and targeted um, be, because of racism. And what they say that makes a lot of sense to me is there is nothing you can do online to directly engage that type of hostility. Um, the best thing you can do is say, I would really love to talk to you. Can I get your phone number? Because some once we are human with each other, once we hear each other's voices or see each other's faces, um, that's when our de-escalation skills really can show up. There's very little you can do uh, via text <laughs> or, or email exchange uh, that's going to get to the tone and the human connection that, that is lost in these exchanges. That's right. It's all about empathy. And uh, society seems Correct. to have a great okay. lack of empathy recently. We need to get back to that place. And that solves many, many situations. Give me some tips. Uh, I'm a security guard. I'm listening to this podcast. And I'm thinking, you know, tell me as a, as a basic security officer how I can how I can improve my situation going into these confrontations. So we mentioned just like knowing what your triggers are. We all have them. We all have those things that get under our skin. Just be honest with yourself. Write them out and be curious about them. Like, oh, okay, where did that come from? Get some support around that thing in your off time <laughs> so, so that you can be more professional on, on the job. Um, and then the other thing, you know, we talked about is just showing up with, with all of your resources, right? You're, you know, well-slept, well-fed, not over-caffeinated. Um, when you have that sense of urgency or reactivity, be curious about it. Like, why, why is that? Why do I, you know, why do I jump when I hear a loud noise? What's, what's going on? Why am I so reactive right now? And do things in your personal life or in that moment that, allow you to go back to your calm state. Like it, we all have different things that get us into what I call the green zone. Um, just make yourself a real friend with whatever your thing is. Um, for some people that's physical exercise, you know, regular physical exertion. So for some people that's meditation or art or uh, socializing with positive people. There's, there's so many ways that we can bring that resiliency into our life. And that I really encourage people to explore that as well. Christine Scott, excellent, excellent information. Thanks so much for coming on Security Management Highlights. And let's continue this conversation because I suspect none of these things are going away anytime soon. I think, I think society's going a different direction for the next uh, several years. And we need to really get a handle on this and, and really help our, our security officers in the field. Thank you. Mr. Riza Razul is the Chief Technical Officer for Real Networks and their executive sponsor for low-bias in-camera AI. Mr. Riza, welcome. Security Management Highlights, my friend. Chuck, very, very glad to be on, on the program. 
Now, the topic today is the importance of addressing bias in facial recognition and artificial intelligence. And what better company to do that than the original Real Networks? Uh, Real Networks should be in the Smithsonian. They were really the first in this space for, for video way back in the 90s, 94, I think it was. Tell us how Real Networks got into this, uh, this project. This is really good. Gosh, Chuck, you're making me smile. Um, yes, Real Networks, arguably the inventors of streaming media. When the Earth's crust was cooling, I guess. Uh, when, <laughs> when you and I had <laughs> less gray hair than we have now. How did we get into the space? Well, it's a very good question. You know, when we go back and look at that, that invention of streaming media, it was actually the publication of a streaming protocol called RTSP, the Real-Time Streaming Protocol. It turns out that if you look at most of the cameras in the security space, they utilize that RTSP protocol. So arguably, we've been in these um, camera devices since, since the start. Now, that technology was an act of philanthropy to the industry. We, we gave that free to the industry and it wasn't licensed. I joined the company five years ago as CTO, and the mission was to help turn around this beloved brand. Um, the CEO and founder of the company had also returned to the company after a, a period away, and he'd returned to the company that was bleeding cash and had lost focus and uh, was basically on, on the back foot. So the mission was to build a new foundation, a new technical foundation uh, for the company upon which we can build products and services to power um, its, its rebirth. And so, wow, well, we're five years into that, that mission and how are we doing? Um, it wasn't a difficult assessment initially to look at what was in the tool belt of the company to realize, well, we had no AI. So that was my early thought was to inject AI into all of our product streams, all, all, all of the portfolios. My, my hunch was actually that AI would be applied in the area of video compression first, but we've got a thriving messaging business. And then we had a project that came under my um, management uh, called Real Times. Now, Real Times was a photo camera roll backup um, uh, program. It was uh, photo editing, backing up of your camera roll from your mobile phone to the cloud. And it also created movies out of your videos and photos. So the program is called Real Times. One of the features in real times, one of the feature requests was to be able to index your backup, your camera roll by face. So this would be a lovely um, feature to have. Um, it's now uh, commonplace in, in, many, in many photo uh, applications. Uh, but to do this for photo and for video seemed uh, like an interesting technical challenge. So we applied AI technology to this. And very soon we realized that we, we, our algorithm was improving in accuracy and we were benchmarking against the standard SAS cloud uh, players like Microsoft and Amazon and uh, Google at the time. 
and we found, hey, we're, we're, we're catching up to them and soon we were outperforming them. And so when we, when we showed this technology to Rob Glazer, the founder of the company, he was very excited about it. And uh, uh, my recollection is he, he wrote a memo to the board saying, hey, I think we found the new crown jewels of the company. But he gave us a challenge. He said, look, as the inventors of streaming media, we really need to be the world's best at live video uh, facial recognition, not another me too in the cloud photo facial recognition solution. We really need to be the best at live video. So that's that, that was the challenge that Rob set us um, back in, I guess, 2016, 2017. Um, and now today, I think we've achieved that. Well, I think we are the world's best at live video. Um, and uh, we have a very powerful solution. Um, but with great power comes great responsibility. And uh, that's what I want to talk to you about today. When I started reading your article, I started thinking, wow, I never considered the other part of this, how it can be incorrect based on some of these internal biases. So let's talk about that that white elephant in the room and uh, and tell us how you're handling this. And by the way, let's define what what the bias in these algorithms can be in the first place. The um, National Institute of Science and Technology conducts a bake-off of um, the current facial recognition algorithms. And um, the end of two, uh, 2019, they produced um, their report on the demographic effects of um, these, these algorithms and compared all of them and, and measured their bias. And the bias here, what does bias mean? Well, bias, if you look up in the dictionary, means it's kind of a prejudice in the favor of one thing or person or group compared to another um, in a way that's considered to be unfair. So that's, that's the colloquial definition of bias. But the technical definition when you are comparing um, facial recognition models is how does the accuracy vary across a landscape of faces? And that landscape could be by gender, it could be by age, it could be by skin tone, it could be by geographic origin of the subject. The goal would be that you be as accurate for one demographic group as any other demographic group. And if you've got a skew or a widespread of accuracy, then that represents bias. Now, I had no idea this was happening, but my, my little security guy brain is still trying to get, get around this. Tell me why somebody would sit down and do some algorithms that didn't address this in the first place. Is it, are we not there with facial recognition that it's just matching ones and zeros? We have to start with some sort of classification first? Is that what I'm hearing? No, it's, it's more the case of how you train the model and, and, and the difficulties of training the model. Um, so the biggest um, difficulty you face in trying to train a model is coming up with a training data set. So let's say you were creating a, a model um, for cancer diagnosis. So this is you're an engineer and you're given the task of create me an AI model that can look at a cell biopsy and determine whether it's cancerous or benign. 
okay, so that'd be a great model to create. And here, what is your training set? Well, you've got the last 10 years of data of cell biopsies of patients, and the ground truth says, did they die of cancer or did they survive? So, so any engineer can take that training set and build a model that can look at a new cell biopsy and say, I will um, uh, and make a determination whether this cell is cancerous or benign. Okay, so that is a very simplistic model and getting the, the training set is the difficult part. The tools now, the AI tools, which were um, made publicly available um, by great philanthropy of, of, of Google uh, with the TensorFlow tool sets, and then they followed um, uh, similar releases from, from other major contributors that provided the tools. Now engineers have the tools for training the model. The hard thing is getting the training set. So in the case of facial recognition, uh, vendors get their training sets in different ways. Let's talk about how Real Networks got its training set. We used our consumer-facing applications and where the customers checked a box that said they um, opt in to the facial recognition terms and conditions and they allowed us to use their photos and videos for training purposes. Um, we, we amassed a, a training set that was representative of a global population that had given us specific consent for this use case. And um, it also represented real world, in the wild uh, faces that were not necessarily looking at a camera, they were not necessarily well posed, well lit. So we end up with this wonderful training set. Other vendors get their training sets from their national governments. Um, uh, the two major vendors in, in China got, one got the passport database, the other got the visa database. These are valuable training sets because they come with metadata. So you've not only got the raw images, but you've also got the metadata to say, these images represent this person, this is their age, this is their gender. It might have other metadata associated with it, um, which, which makes it um, also makes makes it possible for you to train other models. Here is the problem that if you have a, a training set that's not representative of the, the entire world, you your model ends up being super accurate for, uh, let's say, for people from the greater China region, but not very accurate from pe for people from Europe or people from Africa. So what do you do? Do you throw out the model and say, no, I really need a global model? That it looks from the data that instead some vendors have um, chosen to amalgamate several models together and create a big fat bloated model with, a, with maybe a demographic switch in the front of it to determine which branch of the model to use. Um, it becomes difficult. So look, training for low bias is it has to be done. It has to be a deliberate thing you do at the outset because the easy option is to take an off-the-shelf training set and train your model 
it, it um, is only uh, relevant for the, um, the, 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 the domain in which you um, uh, source the, the, the data from. Unless you're deliberate about training for low bias, you're not going to end up with a low bias result. Let's say that everybody in the United States had a driver's license, and it's a nice, clear photograph. And I want to search against that. And I have a nice, clear photograph of some guy, I don't know, running a red light, stealing something, whatever it is that they want to search you on, right? Am I still not going to get the right match if I don't do this other work you're talking about and eliminating some of that bias in the training? Yeah, so even even um, the U.S. driving license Imagine if there was a driving license database um, of all the photographs from driving licenses. That would be a that would be a um, a good training set. Any training set you'd have to go through and look to see is the is the training set representative of the the population upon which you want to um, uh, do do the, uh, the the search. One training set, for example, and in fact, it wasn't a training set, it was rather a test set, but some people used it for training, is called Labeled Faces in the Wild. It was a, a, a training set developed by University of Massachusetts. And the way they, they, they created this um, set of faces was by scraping um, local news articles or, or news articles from, from, from national papers and their online um, online papers. Many people use that as a uh, test set, and the early benchmarks were um, of 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 against labeled faces in the wild, LFW as it's known in the industry. But it turns out that that set had more images of George W. Bush in it than it did of the total number of black females in that set. So George W. Bush. Wow predominated <laughs> and so it was a very skewed data set many many um, companies used it in fact they trained their algorithms on the test set in order to do well in the uh, in the rankings uh, but this does not mean that you end up with a uh, a model that can uh, serve uh, all of the population equally let's talk about the legalities here Fingerprints been around a long time. It's very well established when it comes to evidence. DNA, right? It's pretty, pretty mm -hmm. good. It's nothing's absolute, but DNA is pretty established. I'm hearing that facial recognition as a legal tool is really not there. We're we're really nowhere near this level we need to be to make this, for lack of a better word, conclusive. If we can make anything conclusive, that we have a long way to go to get this right, don't we? We do have a long way. We have a long way as um, an industry. We have a long way as a society. Some regions of the world are, are actually tackling this problem uh, head on in a more um, deliberate way. Um, the regulations in the EU, uh, the GDPR regulations, advocate for the subjects of facial recognition more deliberately. And... Um, specify that uh, if you're going to be using computer vision, if you're going to be using facial recognition, you need to get the specific opt-in from the subjects of facial recognition, unless there is a use case where you have a legitimate um, uh, concern. 
within certain constraints you'd be allowed to use to capture the biometric information of someone that walks onto your property for certain use cases. However, let's say you were a department store and you just wanted to do, um, figure out who are returning customers. That's not a legitimate use case unless you have the opt-in permission from those customers. And um, it'd be a nice thing to have to know who are your returning customers and say, oh, okay, that's, that's Chuck. He, he was in the store a week ago. We didn't have his size. We have it in stock now. Go meet him. Um, he's just walked into the front door. Go meet him and close the, uh, the sale. That would be a lovely uh, use case. But it's, it's actually, that would be, that would come under the GDPR regulations where you'd need Chuck to have opted in to some VIP program in the department store so that you can get that sort of concierge level service. So the way I describe it there, it becomes kind of um, appealing. And maybe maybe Chuck would want to sign up for that because uh, you, know, you get a, a VIP concierge level service having been recognized coming into a store. A lot of moving parts here, but yeah. give us your best your your best guidance on how to get this right if I'm starting up facial recognition in my business. Yeah, so so look the 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 bake off that NIST does is like the Grand Prix race um, uh, competition. Um, a lot of vendors spend a lot of money to get into the top ranking, and in terms of accuracy, there's not a lot separating the 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 lead players. So what are the other differentiators that you, that really matter? It's speed. Uh, if you want to um, use this for real-time video, as we do, and it's the compactness of the model. Um, can it actually fit into a device like a camera and run autonomously? That's that's definitely uh, where we are. But I think overriding all of this uh, is is the ethical metrics of of the of the uh, algorithm and of, of the uh, AI model. So this is this becomes super important because I think commercially, this is the biggest headwind that facial recognition faces. It's not a technical challenge anymore. It used to be a technical challenge. It's now um, a social and ethical channel challenge. If you've got that billion dollars to spend and you want to bring to, to bear the, the best part of the uh, minority report and, uh, and, and not the, the more dystopian Orwellian um, uh, vision, then uh, I, think, I think there is a way of doing that. And I wouldn't be in this, I wouldn't be in this mission, on this mission, um, unless I thought there, were, there wasn't a way uh, to do it. Very well said, my friend, Mr. Rizzo Azul with Real Networks. You hit it right on the head, I think, when you spoke about the ethical application, because if we started there on most things, we'd be much better off. Thanks so much for coming on ASI Security Management Highlights. Thanks. Thanks so much, Chuck. Thanks for having me on the show.